Okay, I'll now have Godfrey Moyer come to read today's scripture, and then I will be back for today's teaching. Okay, today God speaks to us from Acts 3, 1 through 21. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man was lame from birth, was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, and did, and, as did John, and Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You called the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that the Messiah would suffer. Repent then. And turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Messiah, who has been anoint, appointed to you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. The word of the Lord. Thanks be, Thanks be to God. So... One cannot read the Bible without running into uh, events and stories that seem to require a, a suspension of what we consider to be natural. Right, so massive bodies of water being parted, not natural. Walls of cities coming down because trumpets blasted, not natural. Uh, men being thrown into fire and not burning up and then walking out and not even smelling like smoke, not natural. Walking on water, healing the blind, raising the dead, not natural. But what if all of those events actually are natural? 
What if the need to escape oppression, what if sickness and fear and violence and death are unnatural? And what if all the miracles that we see in the Bible are giving us a glimpse into the way that life should be? What if we are being given a glimpse behind a curtain of frailty and sorrow that surrounds us and into a world of restoration? A world we all inherently know should exist. Well, Acts 3 gives us insight into that world. And though there are many passages that we could cons- where we can consider this reality, as we're going to see in Acts 3, it's one of the most significant because of the way it emphasizes the way in which God is committed to the restoration of all things, while also giving us a glimpse of that hope for that coming day. And so today, we are going to continue our series uh, looking at the book of Acts, and I hope to put this hope before you. This is the goal. This is what I hope that we can see, is I want us to hear God's words as living hope for those that are in Christ. I want us to see the miracle of Acts 3 as not some kind of unnatural, rare occurrence, but rather an event that shows what ought to be normal, natural, and anticipated. And so to see that, let's see how Acts 3 teaches us about our need for restoration, the promise of restoration, and the hope for restoration. Right? So first, the need for restoration. Um, we need to start with just some really basic assumptions about what we're seeing here in Acts 3. Specifically, the story is about this man who was poor and was disabled. It says that he was lame, and as a result, he was begging in order to sustain himself. Uh, and in every, every society, uh, whether including our own, you know, the wealthiest nation that's ever existed on the face of the planet, uh, but especially in ancient societies, to be disabled, especially in this way, left you in pretty dire straits. And here we have a man who sat at the gates of the temple hoping to be given enough to survive for that day. This was a daily ritual for him. And his placement and the time in which he was placed there was not happenstance, but it was rather very intentional. Uh, Biblical commentators note that 3 p.m., which is noted in our passage, uh, was one of the times, uh, which was three times a day, when people would come and they would pray in the temple, and priests would also offer sacrifices. And so his family and his friends, uh, the family and friends of this man, bring him to the gate because those going into the temple would have been more likely to have a a pang of the conscience uh, and give to this crippled man. Now, why? Why was it important that they had this pang of, uh, of their conscience? Well, because they had prayer and they had sacrifice in mind, which then made them more conscious of this man who was in need. I mean, let's be, let's be honest. On Sunday mornings, when you're heading to church, does anybody else ever feel like you need to be a little bit more holy or good on that day or in that morning? All right, I remember when I was a kid, We'd be on our way to church uh, in the car, and the radio station would come on. The radio station that we'd been listening to all week, it would immediately start playing all the popular hits, but it was Sunday, so we had to turn it off because we were on our way to church, right? If you grew up in the church, you probably know what I mean. So you have that dynamic going on, right? So you've got the religious going, a little bit more conscious of uh, this lame man. 
But the other thing, this is a little bit of a side note, but I think it's important, to, it's worth noting, is there's also this like socio-religious thing going on here. One commentator uh, said this about the broader socio-religious reali- socio reality happening there. Is that daily, the beggar sat at the temple gate and expected monetary gifts from the worshipers. This man was not a member of the Christian community, for then he would have received financial assistance from the believers. But God had told the Israelites that there should uh, not be any poor among them. But the Jews ignored God's command and considered giving alms to a beggar a virtue. Now, here's why that's important. For one, it's important just to note that the commentator speaks of how the Christians cared for one another. It was a non-negotiable for Christians to care for one another, especially those who would have been in need or vulnerable. And the Christian ethic about caring for the poor and the vulnerable, also it did extend even beyond just those of their particular tribe. Because Jesus himself calls us to care for our neighbor. And when Jesus is asked, well, who then is my neighbor? It's then that he tells the story of the great Samaritan. And the essential uh, down to the, just the bottom line of what that, that parable was about is that your neighbor is anyone that you may come across who is in need, even if that person maybe is your enemy. And so it's interesting just to note that Christians have this ethic about caring for those in need, those that are vulnerable, no matter who they might be. But the other point that's being made here is that caring for the poor in this time was considered at this point a matter of choice. It was a virtue to be commended instead of a norm to be expected. You know, we only commend or treat actions as virtuous when they are outside of the norm. And for Christians, caring for the vulnerable among us should not be virtuous in the sense that it is some abnormal thing, but rather it ought to just be the norm. That's a bit of a side note, but here's the point is that we, we, when we read this story, we see a man who was born into and trapped by his infirmity and also by poverty. He was forced to beg at this strategic location to play off the consciences of those that were coming in because in many respects, the cultural milieu uh, of the day just did not see him as a priority and the expectation to care for him was not there. And when we hear that, when we see stories like that, of course, this is thousands of years ago, but a similar kind of story happens every single day in our city. When we see that, we just, we know that something is wrong with that. There's something inside us that says that sickness and paralysis and poverty and apathy toward the vulnerable, that it's just wrong. There's something in us that knows that this should not be normal. I mean, there are some of you right now who are experiencing sickness or death or trauma or poverty or unemployment or fear or a host of other realities, and you look at it and you say, "Ah, this is just not how things should be. And where do we get that sense that this is not how things should be? Why is it that we have this sense about what is right and what is wrong, what is just and unjust, loving and unloving? Well, according to the Bible, it's because we are all made in the image of God, and as a result, we have a sense of how things should be in God's perfect creation. But that something has gone horribly wrong. In Romans 1, it tells us that the attributes of God are seen in all of creation, but that we have rejected God's intention 
for his good creation, and because we've rejected those, uh, those good things, we've rejected him, which is, of course, by definition, sin, which is the fundamental reason why human-made injustice and wickedness occur. But then we also see in uh, Romans 2 that the law of God has been written on our hearts, which leads us to know, to some measure, what is right and wrong. So that when we are sitting at the bedside of a loved one, or we're at the funeral, funeral of one that we loved, or we experience injustices, we know that there's just something not right with it. It's because God has put it within us, written it on our hearts to know that there's supposed, something supposed to be better than this. And why do we know it's not right? It's because it's actually not the way that things should be. I mean, this is the claim of Christianity, that God did not create sickness or death or injustice. They have entered the world because of sin. In God's good cre original creation, there was no sickness or death or suffering or injustice. But this world is not the way that it's supposed to be. It's not natural. So much of this world is not natural, as this was not God's original intent. And it's at least worth noting as a bit of a side note, again, that in a naturalistic or atheistic worldview, what we see in the world is natural. It's normal. It's just the survival of the fittest out there, that the weak and the vulnerable can be discarded because the sick have some genetic flaw that predisposes them to weakness, that oppression is just the strong exerting their dominance over the weak, and any pursuit of ending such things is just this utopian dream because in the end, our greatest achievements will not stop the inevitable, which is the death and the destruction of all that we know. Uh, as a family, we've been watching uh, the show Cosmos on Disney+. Plus. Uh, I frankly have loved it, mostly because I'm not super science-y and I need someone to kind of bring it down to my level. And so I've actually learned a lot. I've enjoyed it quite a bit. But setting aside uh, the consistent jabs that they're always taking at people of faith, that's a whole other thing. It's kind of annoying. But, um, but one of the most consistent things and one of the most consistent themes throughout the show has been how vulnerable we are on this planet. That death and destruction are pretty much always right around the corner. That there's always some super volcano or an asteroid or something that's going to completely obliterate our planet. Or just the reality that one day our star is going to implode and that will be the end of us. But from the Christian perspective... Humanity, as image bearers, we have this collective human remembrance of how things should be. That this death, this destruction, is not how things ought to be. And as a result, all of our pursuits in technology and medicine and even our pursuits of justice are all attempts at trying to restore what was lost as a result of sin. So having said all of that, from that vantage point, when we see miracles, they are not suspensions of the natural order. Rather, they are reminders of the real natural order. Miracles are a glimpse behind that curtain of frailty and sorrow and into a world of promised restoration. So let's consider that promise of restoration. How, uh, I just said a lot not related to our passage. Let's get back to our passage. Uh, again, we have a man who is lame, who is poor, uh, and he is begging, and he calls out to Peter and John and asks them for money. 
And their response to him is to say, we do not have money, but what we do have, we give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And at the name of Jesus, the man's legs are healed, and he immediately leaps up and begins walking and jumping and praising God. I mean, you can just imagine the scene. Of course, everyone is astonished at the sight of this man that they have seen time and time again. He was there every day, so you have to assume everyone has seen him over and over again, and now here he is running and jumping. So, of course, they crowded around wanting to know what was happening. Now, Peter and John, seeing all this, they, uh, they cut through all this commotion, and they, uh, essentially Peter preaches a sermon. And in that sermon, he basically says, why are you surprised? We didn't do this. God did this to glorify Jesus. And then he pursues, or proceeds to speak of how Jesus was crucified, that they had killed the author of life, uh, that it had been foretold that the Messiah would suffer, and so they must repent of their sins. Now that message, we're going to get to this next week, that sermon that he preaches actually gets him in a lot of trouble. We're going to see that trouble in uh, chapter 4. But let me focus a little bit on a couple of things he says in that sermon, particularly verse 16 and verse 21. In verse 16 he says, By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him as you can all see. And then in verse 21, it says, uh, again, uh, speaking of Jesus, Peter says, Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Now, here's what I want us to see. I said this last week, uh, but I believe that the book of Acts is full of what we call redemptive historical events, meaning that there are unique events, these are unique events in history where God is revealing more of his plan of redemption to us, and that these events aren't necessarily telling us what we ought to normatively expect in our relationship with God, but rather that we get to see glimpses of God's broader redemptive plan. Now in Acts 2, we saw the redemptive historical event uh, of God's spirit filling his people so that now Christians are all burning bushes, not consumed by power, but now empowered by it. And it's not a coincidence that the very next passage, the very next chapter after 2, is chapter 3 now with this healing. As you read... Uh, this passage, and as, you, uh, as we continue on into chapter 4 next week, what we're going to see is an emphasis on restoration and healing. We see this come up over and over again in chapter 3 and in chapter 4. But in essence, what happens in chapter 4 is that Peter and John, they're confronted by the religious leaders uh, who are unhappy about the healing and the sermon. But all through these two chapters, there are constant references, even in chapter 4, to this restoration and healing. Why? Well, it's to get back to that redemptive historical idea, that God is communicating something far greater and bigger than just the healing of a single man here in Acts 3. See, miracles in the New Testament are almost always teaching something grander. They are not just displays of power. There are countless different ways to display power. But God is very specific in the ways that he reveals his power. This is why 
We should not expect healing power to come to us at all times because God's primary action is not just healing itself, but the message behind it, the message that for Peter and John actually got them in a lot of trouble. And this is where a lot of us tend to get it wrong. There are some who are upset with God when they pray for healing and then God does not heal. And the reason that one might be upset is because there's an assumption that healing is somehow the true manifestation of God's power at work, and it's not. There are others who say that God must, uh, uh, we must expect that God will heal us. If we just have enough faith, he will do so. But again, that assumes that healing is somehow the true manifestation of God's power at work, and it's not. There are those who would say that God will always give new miracles to validate the Christian message. But again, that assumes that the miracles and the healings are the manifestation of God's power at work, and they're not. I mean, do I believe that God can heal and that God will do miracles? 100% yes. Do I believe that we should boldly come before him asking for healing? 100% yes. Do I believe in most cases that God is going to do so? No. In fact, for every person that Jesus physically healed, there were countless thousands that he did not. I mean, and do we believe that this lame man in Acts 3 was the only lame man that had the idea about coming to the temple gate? Of course not. There would have been others who were healed. So why was this man healed and no one else at that gate that day? The reason is because the healing is not the true manifestation of God's power at work. The message of the healing is where the true power rests. So what then is that message? What are the words of healing that we need to hear? I'd ask you to maybe nerd out with me for a minute. Some interesting things happening in Greek in this passage that I want to draw out. Why not? It's fun. In chapters, both this chapter and in chapter 4, there are no less than five different Greek words for healing that are used. Two of those words are used nowhere else except in Luke and Acts. And one of those words appears only here. In all of the New Testament, this one word is here, and it's in verse 16. Now, the Greek word English translators have actually struggled to know how to come up with a perfect um, translation. Uh, other tra- in our translation here, uh, the Greek word for healing is, d- is um, translated completely healed. In other translations, it's translated perfect health. In the Old King James, it's translated as perfect soundness. And what, is that, what does that mean? What is, try- what is that word trying to communicate? Well, what the word is trying to communicate is that this healing is something more than just the man's legs being healed. It is a kind of healing that extends beyond just the physical ailment. It is a healing of fullness and depth and completion. So we, we cannot be talking about healing of just the man's legs. It's what is perfect health or perfect soundness in one's body if you're only going to die at some point. And just to be clear, this man who received complete healing, perfect soundness, died at some point. So there has to be something more that Luke is describing in this complete healing. I mean, even Satan and his legions have the power to perform what appear to be miracles and maybe even to make it uh, seem as though one has been healed. And they use that power to deceive. Temporary healing 
though astounding, is not the ultimate point or the true manifestation of God's power at work. Where then is the point? What is, go- what is being communicated? Dennis Johnson, who's a theologian who is, who is spending time reflecting on this one word, he puts it this way. This is, this is what he tells us is happening there, what's being communicated. Why is there this concentration of healing and restoration language, some of which is rare elsewhere? This miracle, here's the point, this miracle is a sign given at the start of Jesus' heavenly ministry to demonstrate how he has begun the healing of the cosmos by the power of his name in those who have faith. Okay, did you catch that? The healing that we see here, the healings in the New Testament are giving us a glimpse behind that curtain of frailty and sorrow that surrounds us in this world, and it's giving us a glimpse into a world of complete healing, perfect health, perfect soundness, the complete restoration of the cosmos. I mean, one day, the cancer that is ravaging your body or the body of one you love will succumb to the power of complete healing. The brokenness of your body that has left you disabled will succumb to the power of complete healing. The daily pain and discomfort that you might feel will one day succumb to the power of complete healing. The torment of your mind that has caused depression and anxiety will, com- will succumb one day to the power of complete healing. The allure of addictions and the draw of sexual sin will one day succumb to the power of complete healing. The brokenness and the fractured relationships of our lives, the wickedness and the abuse and the injustice that exists and all the other pain and hurt that are reality of this world will succumb to the power of complete healing. This is not the world that God made for us. The pain and the struggle is not the way that things are supposed to be. And the promise of the healings in Acts 3 and elsewhere are that there is a promise not of temporary healing that we ought to expect now, but complete healing that will await those who are in Christ. This is the promise. This is the hope that we possess. Why, finally, can we hold on to that hope? Consider the hope for restoration. Our hope for restoration is found in verse 6. It says this, Peter said, Silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. In the name of Jesus. What is that? I mean, we've probably heard that statement quite a bit. In the name of Jesus. Well, that statement is not some magic phrase that, like, activates power. It's also not some flippant statement that we put at the end of our prayers. In the name of Jesus is a deeply theological statement that reminds us of and in whom we place our hope and our trust. Jesus Christ is the only reason we can have hope for complete healing because he is the only one who could address the issues of death and sickness. You know, it is, it is interesting. If you read into chapter 4, you see that Peter and John have essentially put their lives in danger as a result of this healing. They get into a lot of trouble for it. And especially because of the message of the healing. But Jesus, he similarly also put himself into a very vulnerable, dangerous position whenever he healed 
anyone. You know, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, do you know what the immediate reaction was from the religious leaders there at the time? John 11 says this specifically, so from that day on they plotted to take his life. Jesus healed Lazarus and they wanted to kill him for it. Why does that matter? Well, it matters because, as one pastor put it, Jesus knew he couldn't take Lazarus out of the grave without putting himself in. Jesus Christ, on the cross, took upon himself our sin, the sin that created a world of brokenness and sickness and death, and he allowed it to fully and completely crush him. Your sin, but also your cancer and your depression, and your disability, and your addiction, and all the other unnatural realities of life, Jesus took to the grave. But praise be to God, he did not stay there, for on the third day he rose again, proving his victory over those things, so that now complete healing is now made available to all of those who are in Jesus. And do you know what that means? It means death and sickness do not have the final say, for Jesus rose in victory over them. And we, look at, we looked at this several weeks ago, but right now he rules and he reigns over the cosmos in this resurrected, ascended power so that now those who come before him in the name of Jesus also have that same hope of resurrection power. Sickness and death and injustice do not have the final word our resurrected Savior does. And if you are in Jesus, cling to the hope of what he's accomplished for you. You will be healed fully and completely. Boldly come to him asking for that healing power, trusting that whether he gives you temporary healing in this life or complete and full healing to come in your own resurrection, that he is committed to your restoration in the end. And if you have not trusted in Jesus, would you look to him now? For he offers you complete healing from your sin, from your sickness. It is ours to be had as we trust in what Jesus has accomplished for us. Let's find our hope there. Let's pray. Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for the work of our Savior. We thank you that uh, by his stripes we are healed. And God, sometimes you bring that, uh, that healing, a, a portion of that healing now, by healing our frail bodies. But more often than not, you call us to look with hope, not just at a temporary healing, but a complete eternal restoration that occurs as a result of what Jesus has done. Our resurrected Savior has conquered sickness and death for us. So God, we do pray now for those within our congregation who are sick. Lord, trusting that you have the power to heal like you healed that lame man. God, we come before you with boldness asking that you would heal. But Lord, in that boldness, we also acknowledge that you are far wiser. You know far more than we ever could. And so if you do not choose to heal, Would you by your spirit encourage your people to cling to the hope of the healing that's to come? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.